Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. My name's Billy Newman. I was just talking the other day about using Terminal on the Macintosh. Terminal's been um, a Unix interface. It's been in the Macintosh operating since about the year 2000 when, what was it, when they switched over from whatever, like Mac OS 9 to Mac OS 10. And that was the transition when they, they kind of switched the framework over to a Unix-based framework. I think what do they call it, Darwin on the Macintosh? Really interesting. Love uh, the way that, that that works. That's really what makes the Mac, o, Mac OS 10 so stable and so um, so useful was a lot of the work that was done to set it up on an older framework of a Unix file system. But, uh, but really cool stuff. Um, so I talked a little bit about that on the last flash briefing. What I wanted to talk about today was a specific command, the SIPS command. Uh, so as this is a photo-oriented flash briefing, the SIPS command is really cool. It allows you to do all this this internal image processing that uh, that I really didn't think you, you would be able to do uh, in it right away. But uh, like for, I guess, for instance, you can resize a whole folder of photographs to some, you know, preset uh, resolution. So if you're in a hurry and you had a folder of images that were maybe full size and you wanted to have a copy of those images, but you wanted to have a web size version, say they were only 2,500 pixels across. You know, so you wanted to like kind of shrink them down a little bit from their full size JPEG version. So you maybe would make a copy of that folder on your desktop. Let's say you go to terminal, you'd orient yourself to that directory. And then I think you would type in SIPS and then um, I think it was like space Z or something like that. And then you like list the, the file directory for where the photos are located. And then you like type in um, like a certain syntax to give you the, the file or sorry, not the file size, but the, uh, the JPEG resolution that it's going to re-render that image to. And then when you hit enter, it executes the command. And then within terminal, it renders out or you can, you can kind of watch it render out as it kind of goes to each of those images and reframes it, resizes it, and then gives you the new file size in the, in the directory and finder. It's really cool to see. It's kind of fun to, to try out, especially if you're kind of in a hurry and if you want to kind of get geeky into, into stuff in Terminal. But the SIPS command, you can do Terminal Man space SIPS, S-I-P-S, and you can learn a little bit more about the uh, image processing system inside the Mac. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. I wanted to, to touch in today and talk about a trip that I just, uh, just finished up going on um, out to out to central Oregon over to the high desert area uh, in, in eastern Oregon. I guess it's eastern Oregon, kind of over near the, the Bend area. We went up to Smith Rock this uh, last week and did some camping out over there. Had a great time. It was, uh, it was pretty nice, but we did the uh, the hike over there at Smith Rock. And uh, I guess I wanted to do just a, a kind of short podcast about about the area over by uh, by Smith Rock, some of the hiking that you can do and, uh, and some of the, the trip and photo stuff that we were working on over there. But, uh, but yeah, I had a great time heading over to Smith Rock, took off for a pretty quick 
easy weekend trip. You know what's great about uh, living here in Oregon on like the I-5 corridor is uh, you could just kind of jump over to Eastern Oregon over over the Cascade Pass, which is definitely a track and a drive. It's different than, uh, than just being on the freeway. But uh, it's uh, pretty cool, yeah, jumping over the highways and getting over kind of into the, the backcountry and the Cascades and then heading over over the pass and then down into the high desert area of, uh, of eastern Oregon over there. So, yeah, I went through Sisters, headed over to Terrebonne, and then uh, went into the Smith Rock State Park area. And really, man, the thing I, I guess I should say is, yeah, Smith Rock is just world-class camping or a hiking area. You really can't camp there. I guess you can kind of camp out in, in a tent. You can kind of bivouac there. Uh, I guess some of the rock climbers do that. But uh, there's also, like, another spot, the area we camped was this campground called Skull Hollow, which is about <clears throat> maybe five miles away or so. It's really not too too far of a drive. But, yeah, hop in the car, go around the mountain. And then on the back side of that, you can uh, you can hang out and set up a camp. I think it's the, the, the area we were at was uh, probably, I guess, I guess it's BLM. Maybe it's, uh, like, State Forest or something still. Uh, but it was dispersed camping areas, so you can kind of drive up this road, pull out on the side, then kind of walk your tent over and, uh, you know, just a couple of feet and set it up, hang out. It was all free. And, yeah, you're just sitting out there in the uh, in the scrub of the, the sagebrush and on some lumpy ground. And I think there's, like, open-range cattle that walk through there, too. Other times we'd camp there in the past. I think Marina and I had, had been there maybe years ago. And we had camped uh, just a couple spots up from the place that we were this weekend. We put up the tent, hung out there, had the car uh, parked there. And then uh, that morning we woke up in the tent. We could hear like a bunch of big footsteps around and sounds and animals. And we were thinking, oh, man, that's weird. And we unzipped the, the screen on the tent, looked outside, and we were surrounded by cows. Pretty wild. <laughs> so, yeah, the, I don't know. The cows, uh, cows just kind of walked through in their little group during the night or during the morning. And uh, ended up in the acreage around where we were. Yeah, kind of cool about open range cattle and stuff. But it was fun hanging out over there. Um, yeah, checking out the Skull Hollow campground it was cool. Getting our, our camp set up over there was cool. Had a couple tents going. And uh, yeah, uh, took off, uh, went over to Smith Rock, did the, the hiking trip over there. That was pretty cool. That's where we did some of our photo stuff. Most of the hike was like kind of a uh, just a cool afternoon hike. It's really a great one because it's, it's a couple miles. It's definitely challenging. If you're not super used to hiking, um, yeah, you, you you could do it, but you could kind of, you should try, train train up for it a little bit, or not train up for it, but you know, get ready. I got I don't know, I blistered up my feet. I got some hot spots and stuff, so it's it's like maybe is it three miles, four miles? I'm not sure. It takes about four hours or so if you kind of take in like an average sort of mellow pace through it. But it's cool. You know, like the lower part, you know, goes around like the Crooked River. Maybe it's only two hours. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we went around the lower part, around the Crooked River, uh, which is really cool. How, how the, the way that the area was formed is really like if you kind of look at it from the outside, maybe the ranch land that's all surrounding it is it's pretty high or it's higher in elevation. It's just kind of this, this flatter area. And then it comes up to the Crooked River where it drops off into this Rim Rock Canyon. And then Smith Rock is, is the volcanic uh, remnant that's been left there as the erosion of the river is kind of wrapped by it and, and pulled away all the sediment that was there that would just kind of make it look like an average boring hillside. And so now you have these, uh, these really exposed, like, uh, I don't know, vivid kind of crisp volcanic rocks that are, uh, you know, just alien to the activity that we see in erosion commonly across the earth here. So Smith Rock, yeah, pretty cool, uh, pretty unique kind of spot to go hike around at. Um, but yeah, really fun to, to kind of jump in there. Really interesting kind of spot to be. 
Yeah, I did the hike around the Crooked Riverside up to the the backside where like Monkey Faces. That was really cool. We went with a couple of people that hadn't been there before, so we got to kind of show them that that area for the first time. And then, yeah, Monkey Face is such a cool phenomenon because really, when you come around that corner, it does anthrop is it anthropomorphically? I guess it's animal. Yeah, anthropomorphically look like and like a. Oh, that's when you make an animal a person, right? When is it when you make a rock an animal? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know that word, but uh, it looks like a monkey. It just looks like a monkey's face. That's why it's called monkey face. No way. So, um, so yeah, we uh, hiked around that spire of monkey face and started going up the Misery Ridge Trail. It's just a bunch of switchbacks to kind of get you up in elevation to get you to the top of the uh, the Smith Rock rock there. And, uh, yeah, walked around the top there for a bit and then hiked down the back side of it. Uh, yeah, really cool spot to, to check out over on the Smith Rock side. There's a bunch of other uh, camping and hiking and stuff you can kind of do there other than just the, the top over loop of the trail. But there's uh, there's other trails that kind of go around the east side of the park. That's got some really cool stuff. And then we're just talking about hiking and taking pictures and stuff a little bit so far. But really the cool thing there is all the rock climbing stuff that you do, all the, the sport climbing that goes on. And uh, and I think that's really cool. We, there's, there's, a, there's really a lot more hikers there today than there were um, – and there were sport climbers. There's there's definitely like a handful of people that were out there, but I didn't see. <clears throat> and it's probably because the conditions were, I think, scheduled to be pretty bad. Like uh, I think it was supposed to be raining a lot of the day, so I don't think a lot of people probably set up their uh, their rock climbing rigs for a day in the rain. But um, but I've definitely seen people there in, in really odd times of the year, like uh, you know, super early March, middle of the winter, um, early April, and stuff. Maybe there's better times of year. To, uh, to do some of the, the types of climbs and stuff. But yeah, I was, I was hoping to find some people doing like a multi-pitch climb. I remember seeing that a couple of years ago on one of the surfaces where you're just thinking like, wow, those people are hundreds of feet up. That means they like, they had to bring their rope up once and then pull it all up and then lead climb it again and then like belay each other. It's just like, wow, how do you do that? That's so wild. So yeah, really scary, uh, kind of interesting stuff how they do all the uh, all the rock climbing stuff. But uh, but man, I wish I I wish I knew a little bit more about it. I got into it kind of um, what it, I don't know. It's, it, I guess it'd be like gym sport climbing for weeks, not not months even. And uh, it's fun. It's fun to check out. Fun to learn about. But man, like being on the rock over at Smith Rock is a lot different. I got to go climb over there one time years ago, and just like getting on the rock and trying to like feel out the routes and stuff is so much different than kind of going for that hold on the wall and the, and the rock gym and stuff. It was just really interesting, kind of getting that experience of being hot and cold. And having all your like outdoor gear on and stuff, and you know you're just kind of exposed to the wind and the elements and stuff, and then you're also trying to like pull up this pull up this mountainside too at the same time. So it's kind of fun. It's uh, it's cool getting used to I don't know trying to rock climb stuff, but uh, but man, yeah, interesting uh, doing the climb and being belayed and uh, and doing all that stuff. But as photo stuff goes, we did a couple a couple 360 things. That was kind of cool going over to Smith Rock and shooting. I've been trying to get into some 360 photo work where um uh, last year we did like a lot of uh, a lot of video clips which is really cool i really like those uh, those stock video clips we produced in a lot of places and we and we shot a ton of photos too which is awesome but uh but now i'm also trying to get into um a bunch of uh a bunch of pieces where we can well i want to try and get the f I want to try and get like collections of photos and then i'm start starting to learn about where you can put these in like virtual tours so you can put maybe four or five or I don't know, whatever it would take, you know, but you, you kind of go to the specific spots in a, in a location or something. And then you, uh, you get the 360 photograph and then you can kind of uh, piece those together as a tour. So you can go from one 360 to the next 360 and sort of this 
immersion. Whoa. So I'm uh, trying to check that out, trying to learn about if, uh, if that'll work for me very well. But, uh, but yeah, I'm trying to do some 360 photo stuff where uh, yeah, you take the photo, then you pull it into Affinity Photo. That's another program. Um, I'm using it on the Mac right now. I think it's available on PC as well. It's sort of a Photoshop competitor. You can buy it outright, I think, for maybe $79 or something like that. It's, it's really not as expensive as the, the Creative Cloud purchases for uh, continuation. But the reason I guess I bring up Affinity Photos, it's kind of noted as one of the better tools right now to project your stitched 360 photo as an equirectilinear equi projection. Uh, in the program, and then you can still use the editing programs in the program. So, um, so like, um, I guess like the new Final Cut Pro has an ability to to project the 360 photograph uh, while you're editing it, so you can add in new materials to it. Like, um, I don't know, like just plates of information that'll stay up in the 360 space that you're at as you move through it. It's interesting how it is. You can kind of stitch things into the fabric of the scene. Uh, within Final Cut in the video, and you can heal your nadir point. So at the base of you is your nadir, at the top of you is your zenith point. So at the at the nadir point in a 360 photograph is where that tripod is going to be, or where you are going to be. You know, the photographer is going to be below it, sort of a thing. So, um, so that's kind of a, I don't know, an interesting part of it where you got to kind of go through. And I guess this is what Affinity is for: is you open up the photo after it's stitched, you open it in Affinity, and then you can go down and heal out. The, the base there where your tripod was or where um, the person was that was taking the picture and then you can have this kind of full uh, 360 photograph without kind of a, a block at the bottom that's, uh, that's just a couple people. So yeah, it's kind of cool. So I'm trying to open it up in Affinity and do a couple color adjustments to it, which is cool that you can go through and do, um, do kind of like post color correction stuff to uh, some of the photographs you can kind of do that with the 360 video, but you also kind of can't do it with the 360 video as well. You can kind of add some. Well, you can add color correction like you can in, in Final Cut, but it's it's really not the same as photo editing, I guess. You know, obviously. <laughs> but it's kind of cool. We've been having a good time trying to edit together those uh, those 360 photos. I'm trying to go through a bunch of the photos that I had taken last year as well, and put those together. And I hope to. Well, I don't know. What is it? Um, what is that 361? Oh, it's skipping my mind right now. There's like this uh, 360 Veer. I think it's Veer, VR. And uh, it's sort of like a YouTube channel for 360 videos and stuff. YouTube also takes 360s as well as a bunch of other places. But uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of a cool uh, little photo and uh, video sharing site for 360 content um, and, and social networking app and all that, you know, kind of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, but I put some stuff up there and that's where kind of people that are specifically interested in, in looking at uh, 360 images and content would go. Um, but yeah, it's a smaller site. It's kind of fun. So yeah, 360 stuff, uh, some photo stuff, had the Canon equipment out there. I was trying to take some landscape photos. It was cool um, that the, the weekend weather was, I think like I had mentioned, there was kind of a forecast to rain. Uh, really that was like some thunderstorms that were blowing across the Cascades. I think there's just a bigger weather system overall this weekend. Uh, not to mention the Perseids, which I should get back to on another podcast. That was probably this, but they got kind of clouded out for me. Shoot, I want to see some meteor showers. So, uh, <laughs> not talking about the Perseids, but uh, I guess kind of going back. Um, oh, I don't know, just the camping stuff. It was cool. We were really happy that we got to go out and uh, and do the camping stuff. Uh, 
sorry that we didn't get to see the Perseus, but uh, I don't know. I guess we're camping out and stuff, so that was pretty cool. It was thunderstorms that rolled over the Cascades, and uh, then we had these big thunderheads. And we were really fortunate that I guess the big system, which I looked really active. I, I pulled up the weather map on the on Dark Sky, the, the weather app that I have on my phone. And you can see just this big red hot spot, maybe 25 miles or 30 miles to the northeast of us. Uh, and it, I don't know, it's probably just, you know, a ton of rain, a ton of hail, a ton of lightning. So really glad we didn't get uh, wiped over by that. That's pretty cool. But uh, but really, yeah, it was, it was a cool kind of textured night where uh, there's just a lot of clouds and uh, like a lot of kind of uh, thunderstorms and stuff. It's cool that the, the airplanes were kind of coming in real low. They had to go around around this huge thunderstorm system, so they were coming in real low and kind of making these uh, sort of strange uh, routes. But it's just kind of fun to see that. I remember seeing that a couple other times in the past when uh, thunderstorms would come in and, and airlines would have to take uh, just these kind of big alternate routes to get around those uh, those thunderstorm cells. Uh, so that was kind of kind of cool checking out. We were taking pictures of it as the sun was going down. There's a rainbow kind of right as the evening was coming coming to a close over our camp. So that was pretty fun. Got some cool pictures of that. And that's what I love. I love that that time of uh, a day or you know right at the end of the day. There's a certain type of lighting effect that happens when there's really like mostly clouds over the sky, but right as the evening, the the western sky has a gap where it's clear, and the sun is able to shine through that pocket there, and you get a lot of light that bounces back between the cloud surface above you and the ground below you, uh, where you're kind of in this little pocket where it just sort of it sort of um, reflects against itself. But you get this kind of warmer, sort of diffused tone around everything. It kind of changes the way the shadows are. It's different than overcast, you know, where you, you, you get a diffusion of the shadows. But this one, you get a really crisp kind of saturated quality to the light. And it's a lot better than, I think, the, um, the softer sort of white light that you get in the diffused circumstances of, uh, of overcast days. But yeah, you get a lot of cool kind of rich contrast in those landscape photos with that kind of lighting condition sort of during that golden hour time with the right kind of cloud effect and stuff really beautiful really soft uh, kind of easy to expose for photography kind of light so yeah beautiful spot to be uh, really kind of surreal colorful looking uh, location and evening and, and yeah fun hanging out watching the thunderstorms camping out getting rained on <laughs> maybe getting hailed on a little bit uh, all part of the experience of, of being outside being in eastern oregon definitely got a little sunburn uh, sore all the rest of it. But, uh, but yeah, good going out and, and camping out and stuff. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. So I was looking around at different options. I really like a lot of the Nikon stuff, but I also noticed that I, I really like the Nikon stuff. I'll leave it at that. I just noticed that sometimes some of the accessory equipment outside of the the body that you might buy, I bet some of the, the lenses are expensive or they're a little more expensive than maybe some of the commensurate lenses that might be available over on Canon. And I remember back in college, someone was mentioning to me that uh, they were going to switch from Nikon over to Canon because Canon was a bigger company. 
I don't know if this is really a, a reason or not. It was interesting logic, though, uh, to kind of think through at the time, but that Canon was a larger company selling more lenses, making more cameras, making more equipment. And so they had more resources, more staff, more designers working on cameras, building cameras, and uh, doing research and development to kind of bring that that forward. And I think even maybe now that's still perhaps true. Like if you if you look at some of the technologies in Nikon versus Canon, like um or just kind of to take a base idea of it, though I love Nikon stuff a lot, but if you were to take like the D five, I think that's a twenty megapixel sensor. Uh whereas in if you were to look at the newer Nike or pardon me, Canon five D Mark Four, that's I think like a thirty one, thirty six I don't know. It's it's up there in the thirty. Maybe I think it's a thirty megapixel camera, and I think perhaps the five D Mark III is a twenty three megapixel camera. Um, so it, it was interesting just kind of noticing a couple of those things. Now I understand that there's benefits to the lower megapixel rating for some of the low light performance that you get at high ISOs, and I think that's maybe sometimes where. Uh, Nikon performs well, but then there's also Sony who's producing 42 megapixel cameras and they're doing incredible things in low light, but also even better stuff with the A7S, which I think is the the version of the camera that's specifically around some of the higher end video features. And I think it's a 12 megapixel camera that does incredible stuff in low light, like almost at like you know 100,000 ISO. You can get really amazing low light images and low light video. Um, so it's interesting how, how that, that kind of sensor technology works. Um, but all that being said, it's just interesting that for a long time, even way back in history, like to the beginning of the, the digital SLR, uh, I think Canon was way ahead in what they were producing uh, as far as their sensors go and what they were able to produce like in megapixels uh, or in uh, fidelity of an image. I think they had uh, they had a... What was the first one? I think Nikon did not have a full-frame digital SLR until the Nikon D3 uh, came out, which was a fantastic camera, and I had that one also as a as a used camera that I bought later. Loved the D3, um, but it was interesting that, uh, that yeah, like they didn't have a, a full-frame DSLR camera option until 2007, I think, when that came out. Whereas on the Canon side, I think the, the EOS 1... The 1DS, is that right? I think it was the 1DS was the first um, was the first full frame camera produced by Canon, and that was way back. And I think that was still like around eight megapixels or maybe ten megapixels for the, the Mark II in that. But they had, they had some technology that was just far more advanced for the time of 2002, 2003, 2004 than what Canon had going on, or pardon me, than what Nikon had. You you know what I mean, right? So anyway, that fast forwards to uh, to me in fall of 2018, I'm looking around for uh, another camera purchase because uh, I was going to be moving and I was going to be taking a job where I was, I was going to be working every day doing family portrait photography and a lot of like wedding photography stuff too, where I needed to depend on the memory card system that would be in the camera, where like on the Sony side, like I had mentioned before, uh, there were some limitations to it. And one of the other limitations was that it, it only accepted SD cards, uh, which are uh, now I'm actually kind of learning are, are fine. You know, you can use an SD card for just about anything, but I also liked the opportunity uh, or the option to have a compact flash card, or maybe it's a USM now. I'm not, USM, USD, that's a dollar. 
I'm not sure. But uh, the compact flash card system that uh, that goes in, I, I always felt that was like a little bit more professional when you put that in. Uh, and I just wanted like more memory options. So with the, I think the 5D Mark III that I decided to pick up used, uh, that had the that had the, the compact flash slot and it also had the SD card slot. And you had the ability to record 1080p video and you had the ability to take photographs. You had the ability to do uh, like high frame rate burst series for photographs. And it just seemed like... Uh, I don't know, it seemed like it was a great workhorse camera, the, the 5D series. And I think that's what people have been talking about, even since like the 5D Mark II when they announced the, the HD video recording features on DSLRs. Uh, so I think that, and even before that, you know, it was just, it was one of the top, top used cameras for wedding photographers and stuff. So for me, I was trying to find something that would be like a good workhorse camera where I could always kind of count on it and the battery system and the memory card and the lens arrangement that I would be available to me that I could really just be hammering away on frames and uh, and then be bringing those in, editing them, and then kind of delivering them to clients in a pretty fast manner. So I thought that would be something that would help me out. Um, and I, I think I was right. I think it was a good choice, though there are fantastic options with like the A7 Mark III or the A7 III and the A7R III. I think both of those have kind of solved a lot of those issues that I've been talking about where they've adjusted the, the battery system and they've adjusted the um, just some of the, the blackout problems that I was talking about before. But um, but I was happy to switch over to the Canon side of it. Uh, I think also because of that reason I was talking about too, where yeah, no blackout. And you, I really like being able to use the through-the-lens uh, viewfinder of the SLR as opposed to the, the digital SLR or just looking at it on the screen. Um, so, I don't know, all those reasons were kind of why I wanted to get back to the the, the DSLR system instead of the uh, the interchangeable lens camera system. Um, but it was great. So, uh, so back, I think, in September, I uh, I was looking around a lot. I, I sold the A7R off, and then I was trying to hunt around for uh, options for me to get a well-priced uh, Canon 5D Mark III. And then I also bought one for Marina, so she had a 5D Mark III body and then we could kind of share lenses for it too so i wanted to get up and running um and i wanted to talk about like some of the lens stuff that i was interested in too it's interesting kind of switching over to canon now uh just kind of seeing you know what's available and what's available in the used market which for me and for you know someone that doesn't want to spend a ton of stuff getting a pretty high level professional level uh set of photography equipment it's interesting to kind of uh, comb around through the used market and figure out good pieces to use. I think almost every camera system I've ever had has been something that I've made a purchase of off of the used marketplace in some manner. You know, I haven't bought a new film camera, that's for sure. Um, so it was interesting kind of uh, trying to figure that out a little bit. And I've always had really good luck with it. I hear some bad stories out there, but really it seems like a lot of photographers take pretty good care of their, their camera equipment uh, in a way that it at least seems really quite usable for me still when I end up with it at some point. And I save a ton of money doing it too. And I don't have to deal with the heavy depreciation because like by the time I, I end up wanting to sell it, it really hasn't moved that much in the marketplace. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, it only ends up being like a few hundred dollars to have purchased that camera because when you sell it again, you get a lot of that money back. And as opposed to, uh, well, I'll get into that story in a second, but, uh, but like when I made a purchase of it, that camera was really quite new. And it had depreciated a lot in value from the new price, the new sticker price from the in the store, in the camera store price to what it was when I bought it used. So uh, so it was a fantastic deal to, to kind of pick it up and, and find like a, a good one out there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, back in, 
what was it, back in September, I was hunting around in Oregon trying to find a good uh, 5D Mark III body. So I, I was trying to debate a little bit. I was looking around on eBay for 5D Mark III's that would be available, and I was looking around on KEH, and those are two locations that I'd, I'd kind of made purchases from before when I was making a purchase online. Um, I like eBay, and I sold a bunch of stuff on eBay. I sold my A7R on eBay. I sold my D3 when I had made a, a per, I purchased the D3 I think from KEH and I sold the D3 on eBay and I made, made my money back. It was great. It worked pretty well. Uh, but uh, when I was looking around, I didn't really find the price point that I wanted for the 5D Mark III line. I think those were all running around 18 or 1900 bucks. Uh, for the 5D Mark III bodies that were being sold. But I'm sure, I don't know, it seemed like the market was a little lower than that at the time. And then when I looked on KEH, it was sort of the same story where uh, ones that were in bargain condition, you know, where they had been pretty beaten up or probably had been uh, the you know someone's wedding photography camera where it would really hammered out 100,000 or 200,000 frames already had a few seasons of weddings over the last couple of years and the person was trying to offload that gear and then you know on an upgrade to their their 5D Mark IV or their 1DX or something like that. Um, so I kind of wanted to stay away from those uh, in a way. I'm sure they would have been functioning cameras in the way that they had been reported, but there's really no way to like get an observation of the camera and its function in your hand while you have it to see that it's really like as clean or as in, in good a condition as you'd want it to be uh, for something that you're going to spend $1,800 for. When I was buying used cameras, it was you know sub $1,000 purchases. So it was like, well, you know, it's got a couple scruffs on it or something like that. But uh, but really, they were always quite nice in in their physical condition. Um, so what I had ended up deciding to do was instead of making a purchase on eBay or on KEH, what I decided to do was uh, try and check out uh, the the local marketplaces. So I went on Craigslist to look at the the classified listings that were there in the the you know photo and video equipment for sale listing in my area, and I kind of scoured across Oregon to find, you know, a couple good pieces. So I was trying to look in the Portland area. I was looking over in the Bend area. I was looking in the Eugene area. And I was also looking up into like the Seattle and Tacoma area as well. Cause I thought, well, you know, if I need to, then you know, I'll drive up a little ways and I might save hundreds of dollars trying to make a purchase for a nice camera system. So I thought that might be a good idea. Uh, and then in addition to Craigslist, I was also getting into the Facebook marketplace where I was selling a ton of my, uh, my stuff from my house when I was trying to set up this move over here to Maui. Um, so I was looking around at that. I was thinking, well, maybe I can check out and see if there's camera equipment that are also listed there too. And that actually worked out really well. I was, I was pretty impressed with it. So for the camera bodies, I found two uh, Canon 5D Mark III bodies. One of them I found over in Bend for $1,000 flat, which is an incredible deal. I, I think I think I got the upper hand on that one. It uh, it had been used, I think, for, for just like a single project that uh, that someone had. I think they, I don't know, but they have a business or they were paid to do it. So they, they, they made a purchase of a 5D Mark III and then they shot like a, a series of web instructional like instructional videos for youtube for a company that had purchased it and then they hadn't used that equipment in a while since then so they were going to sell that camera off and get some of their money back so i i got the camera for a thousand dollars even which uh, was fantastic it really barely even had uh like rub marks on it on the base of it you know like when you look at the, the camera body physically the rubber was in fantastic shape and the the base plate, like where the tripod would go, I think was the only area where there was a little bit of a scuff. 
but it was fantastic. It was really cool that, uh, that that had worked out so well for me. So I made a purchase of that camera for a thousand. Then I was looking around and uh, I found another one up in the Portland area that a real estate agent had bought to take photographs of their property. And then I think they had found out that they didn't really want a 5D Mark III, but they wanted a Sony camera. And so they made a purchase of a Sony camera just a few months after that. And then to make up the cost of that purchase, they wanted to sell off the Canon 5D Mark III that they had. And so I saw, and I got the box too, which was interesting. I got the, the box for the 5D Mark III, had the receipt from the camera store that they bought it for. It was, you know, $2,600 when they bought it, maybe 12 months ago or 11 months ago. And I looked at the shutter count of it. There's maybe a thousand, you know, 900 pictures had been taken on the camera body when I made a purchase of it. So it was really almost like a brand new camera. I think I was putting a thousand frames on it a day. At the, at the job that I had, so it, it was. I, I, I've I've already put, broken it in quite a bit more than it had been when I made a purchase of it. So it was really cool getting such a, a new camera for such a low price. So saving a few thousand dollars trying to put it put the, you know these, uh, these this package of equipment together was excellent, and I was really happy to do that. Um, and that was one thing I noticed about the the Canon used market is there's just and this is sort of back to the thing. It's a bigger company, and they're selling more cameras out there. So it was cool that uh, there's just so much used gear out in the market. Whereas opposed to you know if I was looking for I don't know a D800 on the Nikon side or or a D4 or something like that, it would be pretty hard to find those bodies. I guess in that condition or, you know, in that, in that way. And then for that price, it seemed like uh, and uh, same, same goes for like a, a Canon 1DX that I was trying to find that on the used market. Those were really held by professionals or sports photographers. And those bodies were really be, and still very expensive when I was looking around for them. Um, but it seemed like there were so many people that were interested in doing wedding photography or doing photography as a hobby that they would kind of lean into the higher price range and pick up a 5D Mark III and then find out, well, you know, maybe I don't want it or, or maybe I want to switch over to a 5D Mark IV now. And so they were ditching those and offloading those for way lower prices. Uh, so it was excellent time to, to kind of come in, pick those cameras up and uh, and kind of start getting set up. But the other thing I noticed is that, okay, so now we have the, the 5D body now we're going to need lenses to work on these. So uh, what I was looking for was the the USM, uh, well, what was it, the, the 24 to 70 f2.8 lenses that were for like the professional full frame cameras. And I was fortunate to find those again on the Facebook marketplace. I think I had found one in the Eugene area and I got a USM1 24 to 70 uh, which was a great price. And then I also found a USM2 24-70 that had been used more. I definitely could tell that it had been used more. This, Even though it was a newer version lens, that it definitely had, I think, some more wear on it. And that's that's probably the lens that though still works great, still has great optical clarity, but it's probably the one that, that seems the most tired when I'm using it sometimes. So uh, I'm, I don't know, it's interesting sometimes. But, uh, but I'm sure I probably put a ton of work on it, too, just kind of racking it back and forth, trying to get all these different photographs that I was trying to shoot. So uh, I don't know. I, lenses don't last forever, and they're mechanical pieces. Uh, but uh, but these are really well-built. You know, these uh, these professional L-glass systems are, are really sturdy and well-built, and I was really impressed with how they were working. So I had a, had a great time using it, and uh, I didn't really seem to, to run into any problems while I was trying to produce uh, produce photographs with it. But I found, uh, yeah, I found one of them, one of the lenses in the Eugene area, and then I found another one up in Portland, and so I drove up to, to pick that lens up. And then I had, you know, I had two 5D Mark III's and two 24-70 to 
f2.8 lenses to throw on there to do a bunch of the family portrait stuff and a bunch of the you know kind of lifestyle images that i was trying to do so it was a great starting setup for me to to kind of get and then move out from and uh, so I, I had been working with that for a couple months and i've been trying to kind of expand from that uh, since then and so the the stuff that i'm looking for now um well so i started uh, looking into like uh some things for like real estate photography and one of the things that's always required for that stuff is uh is like a really wide angle lens uh so when i was looking around with the company that i was working with they were looking for images between 17 millimeters full frame and 20 millimeters on a full frame camera and so i, I went ahead and i purchased the the 17 to 40 millimeter f4 lens which is actually really quite inexpensive i mean you know or and again coming from like the nikon side when i thought like wow that's going to be more than a thousand dollars to pick up uh to pick up a lens for it it, it was really a, a low price i think it was about 520 dollars to buy a new 17 to 40 millimeter uh, uh, lens that was like that, yeah, the F4 that I was talking about. So I picked that one up uh, to do some of the real estate photography, and that amortized pretty quickly. You know, getting to to use that for real estate jobs, it kind of paid for itself just in a couple jobs, along with how the the cameras themselves and the the 24 to 70 sort of paid for themselves by hammering out a bunch of family portrait sessions with them. Uh, so both of those things kind of worked out pretty well. But in addition to that, what I'm looking for is uh, like the 50 millimeter f1.4 lens i was looking at that too and I'm, I'm looking at those new because and this is sort of what i'm saying is it's just it seems like canon lens prices are sort of dropping down a bit I, I, maybe there's newer lenses and i know there's you know the there's way higher end lenses but uh but the the 50 millimeter f1.4 uh kind of lower end lens perhaps is uh i think 299 which is really super cheap like that's that's what i paid for a 35 millimeter dx lens on my uh on my old camera system you know on the nikon stuff so uh so i was or i think uh, what was it like the the 28 millimeter f2 lens i had for my sony camera that was like 450 bucks when i bought it used right so uh it was awesome to find uh to find like that 50 millimeter f1 4 for 299 and then in addition to that uh for other portrait stuff if i wanted to do it i could pick up an 85 millimeter f1 8 for 299 also and i was like wow these are way more reasonable price ranges than uh, than what i thought so it's just really for for not that much i could probably put together a full range of prime lenses that i would want to use and i could put together a full range of uh, zoom lenses that i wanted to use that were all kind of higher end glass that uh, that would be great for you know professional stuff or or the lifestyle stuff or the you know whatever kind of photography stuff i wanted to expand into um, and then on top of that, I was looking at the, though I would love an F2.8, uh, I was looking at the zoom lenses. And one thing I've kind of learned from this job that I was working with is, uh, is really when you're working with compression and, and like when you're working like with, with a zoom and you're com using the compression of the lens past, you know, 70 millimeters, like into the 80 millimeter or hundred millimeter or out to 200 f2a is a is real soft and a lot of the time you especially if you're taking pictures of a couple people together and you're not trying to just rack right into to focus in on an eye and even when you're taking a picture a portrait of someone you really have to to kind of crank it up to f4 or f5 to get a, a depth of field that's thick enough to get their their nose their eyes and their ear in focus in the way that you'd need to and it seems like well you know like i've loved super shallow depth of field but it seems like 
you want to get the person in focus. So you got to get a few parts of them in focus. Um, I remember taking self portraits of my, uh, you know, like I, I'd hold the camera out in front of me with a with the Canon fifty millimeter one eight, and I'd try and take a picture of Marina and I somewhere. And I remember Marina would be just just on the plane in front of me, you know, because we were trying to stand right next to each other, and maybe I would be in focus. But then Marina, just one or two inches in front of my nose, would be completely out of focus. It would look just like a super blurry, kind of washed area because the depth of field was so shallow. And so that's where I was trying to, you know, kind of finally learning, like, oh, yeah, okay, so maybe F1.8 isn't absolutely what you have to have for every photograph that you take, or F1.4 or whatever it might be. Um, so I was, I was kind of finding that part out where, okay, well, I'm going to have to rack this out to like F5 or F8 anyway to get a sharp photograph of the thing that I'm trying to get an image of. Uh, so I have kind of rounded out that I'm going to be fine for a lot of the landscape photography that I'm interested in doing. I'm going to be fine kind of jumping into lenses that are around that F4 line. So I was looking at um, the, the USM 70 to 200 F4 lens that they have. And so I think it's I think that the 2.8, the f2.8 lens that's 70 to 200 is like around 1500 bucks, but the the f4 is about 600 bucks. I think it's like 599 to pick up a 70 to 200 USM lens. Now it doesn't have the image stabilization on Nikon. They call it vibration reduction. Is that right? But the, it doesn't have the image stabilization, and I think it is probably lacking some of the some other additional feature because I know there's two versions after that that escalate in price quite a bit but if you're looking for that older one it's still available on Amazon for $5.99 which is a great price if you want to get a 70 to 200 I think that was really cool and there's a lot of things you could do with it again like I was saying with the compression if you're going out to, to 125 millimeters and you're shooting at f4 that's going to give you a really nice bokeh in the background and you're going to get the person in, in focus if you need to, if you're shooting a portrait. And if you're shooting some kind of landscape or wildlife scene, you're going to be able to do a lot with that, too. You're, you know, you're just going to have a lot of flexibility in what you're able to do. I love fast lenses. I'd really like to always push for, you know, two weight or F1.2 or something like that. Uh, but uh, but I'm loving the fact that there's an opportunity for me to get a whole range of focal lengths as I'm trying to transition over into new gear um, for a much much lower price than what I was expecting. So I think that's all pretty cool. I'm, I've been pretty happy with uh, this transition over into Canon equipment so far. And it's been, it's been interesting. You know, the, the thing that I'm, I'm, thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman photo podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on Billy Newman photo.com. A few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.